0: This message is entitled, Satan's Career and Sin, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Okay, Satanology, if you will turn to Isaiah chapter 28, and while you're turning there, I would like to make a few introductory remarks concerning the importance of the subject that we are taking during these two hours. The first rule of success in warfare is to know your enemy. And in the military, there were three things that basically we sought to get across. One was to know what your weapons are. Secondly, it was to know how to use your weapons. And thirdly, it was to know something about the ones on whom you were going to use them. Those three things are basic, and perhaps the most basic of the three is the latter, to know your enemy, to know how your enemy operates. If some of our fellows going to Vietnam had known ahead of time that they were going to have a whole network of subterranean tunnels and pits here and there with bamboo shoots sharpened, And put down at the bottom for people to unexpectedly fall down upon and be impaled on them, we would have operated differently. And once the allied forces learned how the others were fighting, they began to make certain plans to protect themselves against some of their schemes. The same thing is true in the Christian life. We need to know our enemy. We need to know how he operates and how we may not fall into the trap the snare that he has set for us in history there have been two major kinds of error with regard to knowing this enemy on the one hand there have been those who have taken the devil too seriously, to the point that they have made their Christian life a fight with the devil, and they have consequently fallen out of peace with God. This tended to be the case of the early church and the Middle Ages. The devil became the theme of their theology, and I mentioned earlier that J.I. Packer evaluated them by saying the Christian life was primarily a course of devil-dodging exercises and anti-satanic maneuvers. The early monks and hermits withdrew from the ordinary activities of life to fight the devil full-time, and they forgot, I'm afraid, the triumph of Calvary. And interestingly enough, in that same period of time, we saw a dearth of useful exposition of the Word of God. Consequently, we call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages. And I think to a large extent that is accounted for by the fact that the devil became the theme of their theology. Even when you go to the area of the doctrine of salvation and the value of the cross, the theory of the atonement for a thousand years of the history of the Church, through the early post-apostolic fathers and on into the Middle Ages and Dark Ages, was what was called the ransom to Satan theory. That is, it was their belief that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was a payment to the devil to buy back those who had been lost in sin. So that Christ's death on the cross was a payment to the devil to buy back the children that belonged to God. Actually, we understand that the price was not paid to the devil at all. That The sin was not against the devil. The sin was against God, and it was God that needed to be propitiated. It was God's wrath that needed to be satisfied. But they were so absorbed with the devil that they developed the ransom to Satan theory, and frankly, the church was not even purged of it by the time they reached the 15th century. So that in those Middle Ages, the devil was taken Too seriously, the triumph of Calvary was forgotten. The other error is the error that tended to come with the rise of humanism, the age of enlightenment. As you moved into the Renaissance and into the age of idealism and rationalism and naturalism and on into the 16th and 17th century, there tended to be then the downplaying of the supernatural and the playing up of that which comes by reason rather than that which comes by revelation. And of course when you're studying the devil you have no raw materials in reason to work with for angelology is entirely a matter of revelation so that with humanism, with the enlightenment with the denial of the supernatural came the denial of the angelic world So that angels became simply the figment of our imagination, or merely a vivid expression of the evil that is within us, so that the devil was not taken seriously enough. And this is portrayed by those who see fit to caricature the devil by red flannel underwear and horns and forked hooves and a pitchfork and a tail and so on and so forth. I remember at Atlanta in 1969, one of the little skits that was put on was a caricature of the devil and his counsel that he was having as to how they were going to really outsmart these Christians. And of course, the devil was outwitted every time, and he was made the oath. And Dr. Bright and I were sitting together at the same table, and I said, you know, that really scares me to have Christians caricature the devil that way because that's exactly what he wants you to do. He wants you to misinterpret him because he doesn't present himself like a dumb dope. He is an angel of light and a minister of righteousness. And if we misinterpret him and think he appears that way, then of course we will not be looking for him where he really does appear. So we went through the age where the devil was taken not seriously enough. Now I think we're beginning to see again, at least in the Christian forces, a revival of interest in the devil, having been brought on by, of course, witchcraft and the occult and the horoscope and astrology, all the rest. And the interest is not only among those who are outside the church, but those who are in the church. Consequently, Christians now are becoming very interested in demonology and in casting out demons. And I'm afraid that there are a lot of Christians that forget the victory that was won at the cross. They forget the triumph of Calvary. They forget what Jesus said when he said, Now is the prince of this world judged. That was an historic event that took place at Calvary. And I don't need today to be running around casting out demons. This is exactly what the devil would like once again for us to become obsessed with him and his forces. I don't have to be obsessed with him. His defeat is certain. I need to be obsessed with the victory of Calvary and the open tomb and the realization that the Word of God is all of the input I need to be a victor over the devil. Now, with that in mind, I would like to go back to Ezekiel 28, which together with Isaiah 14 are the only passages in the Word of God that really give anything as to the origin of the devil, his career, and his sin. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So let's look at Roman numeral 1, the introduction, or I should say perhaps capital A, under Roman numeral one, Satan's career, A the introduction, which would be establishing the pertinence of the passage, Isaiah 28, establishing the pertinence of the passage in the introduction here. The reason I want to do this is because we have given to you some principles of interpretation, and I want to try to follow those through and be faithful to them and not just land upon a passage without showing some reason for coming to this passage. Because admittedly, the passage is not speaking directly of Satan, but under certain literary figures. Number one, under the introduction, noticing the immediately preceding context of chapters 25.1 through 28.10, you see that certain lamentations are voiced by God through the prophet over the various nations. If you were to trace through from chapters 25 through 28, you would find that the prophet is giving lamentations over various nations, beginning with Ammon, and then Moab, and then Edom, and Philistia, and Tyre, so forth. And then beginning in chapter 28 and verse 11, there is quite an abrupt change. God is still lamenting something terrible, seemingly related to Tyre, but the things which are mentioned go beyond human quality. You notice verse 11 Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, And perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, so on and so forth. In the day that thou wast created, the end of the verse. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I've set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. That description could fit no human being. So that secondly, the description of the king of Tyre does not fit that of any merely human leader, but rather goes beyond what would normally be expected. Thirdly, other Old Testament passages apparently look beyond the external doings of evil men And view the very core of wickedness. That is, sometimes they will describe an evil man who is an historical personage. And then they will go behind the scenes and speak of the energizer behind that person. That's what you would have in Ezekiel 28 where you begin verse 2 with the prince of Tyre. And a description of him and then interestingly enough a change to the king of Tyre in verse 12. The Prince of Tyre was a human personage, and I believe it was the late Dr. Barnhouse that said, interestingly enough, in history we know of no king of Tyre at this time, but we know of a prince of Tyre. I have not checked that out myself historically. If that is true, it would certainly be an interesting analysis with regard to this passage, but very often the writer will go behind the description of the human being to the energizing force behind him. You might compare, well, we will look in a little bit at Isaiah 14, but you might also compare Daniel 10, verse 21. E.J. Young, speaking of this kind of application of anthropomorphic traits to a supernatural being, says, Israel has an angelic prince, Michael, Hence, it is to be expected that the prince of Persia should also be an angel. Daniel says, the prince of Persia withstood me. And undoubtedly, that was looking to an angelic being behind Persia, just as Michael was an angelic being of Israel. Fourthly, the unusually large volume of space devoted to the city And leadership of Tyre argues that a special significance be attached to the material involved, the large amount of material. For example, if you look back again on chapter 26, you've got a short portion on Ammon, then a short one on Moab, a short one on Edom, a short one on Philistia. And then on Tyre, you've got chapters 26, 27, and 28. And that which is given in chapters 26, 27, and the first part of 28 seems to be of the natural human descriptions. But then 2811, the real king of Tyre who instigated the earthly ruler, the prince of Tyre. So the large amount of scripture would seem to say something. Fifth, the outstanding church fathers, such as Augustine and Tertullian and others, we could go down and name a whole list of them, held to this particular interpretation of this passage, which would seem to verify what we are saying by others who have seen the same thing here. And then sixth, we already mentioned, I believe, the change in titles from the prince of Tyre in verse 2 to the king of Tyre in verse 12 suggests a change of thought in the writer. The change of titles would be significant. Again, the description that is given here, would accord with the portrait of Satan in other parts of Scripture. Compare John 8, and 1 John 3, 8. And again, apart from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, there is no clear revelation of the beginning of sin. Therefore, it would leave us without a factor that would constantly be in the minds of people as to the origin of sin. And Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 does give the answer to that. And then finally, with regard to it, it should not seem to be a problem for the Holy Spirit to take the believer behind the scenes of human activity to view the source of wickedness which penetrates the heart of the wicked government of this age. So that God takes us behind the scenes and shows to us the source of wickedness that we see being manifested in the human activity in this particular world system in this age. Those should be sufficient arguments for demonstrating that this passage should be taken of Satan and not of an earthly ruler. Now, capital B, under Satan's career, A, the introduction, and B now, his original state. We'd like to look at this passage and see what we can learn of Satan as to his original state from the passage. Under his original state, Arabic 1, first of all, as to his character, under that, he was created, not begotten, but created. You have that in verse Thirteen, the end of the verse, in the day that thou wast created, that could not be said of any human being other than Adam and Eve. Eve created out of the side of Adam. Adam created out of the dust of the earth. So this person is a created one. Satan created. Also in verse 15, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created iniquity was found in thee secondly as to his character he was marked by perfection verses 12 to 15 thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty in his creation he was perfect again in verse 15 thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created perfection. Again, as to his character, he was full of wisdom, verse 12, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Secondly, as to his original state, as to his countenance, he was a creature of great beauty. He sealed up the sum, that is, he was the epitome, the apex of beauty, perfect in beauty. And then verse 13, in a unique way, goes on to describe that beauty. Every precious stone was thy covering. I take it he means here, take the most beautiful things you know anything about. Satan was all of that. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold, his external attraction, and the workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Beautiful externally, beautiful internally. As to his countenance, he was a creature of great beauty. Thirdly, as to his calling, under his original state, As to his calling, he was anointed as a guardian of the holy mountain of God. Verse 14. He was a guardian of the holy mountain of God. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. fire seeming to be characteristic of the purity, the purging quality of it. That he had activity there. He walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. He was the anointed cherub, the one that covereth. His activity seems to be the guardian on the holy mountain of God. Where God is, that is where he had his workshop, so to speak. Capital C, his original sin. From the introduction to his original state to his original sin. He apparently had a will with a power of choice. And this uncovering of iniquity in him, which we see here, was the beginning of sin in the universe. He chose to go contrary to the will of God. And if you'll note well, verse 15, this was in heaven, 14 and 15. Until the day that iniquity was found in thee, thou wast perfect In thy ways from the day that thou was created. So nothing is said about Satan being anything less than perfect, but it was without sin. And apparently that perfection included a will, because it says, "Till iniquity was found in thee." Scripture does not say how that came to be. It says simply, "Till iniquity was found in thee." Capital D, his fallen state. One as to his character. As to his character, he is filled with violence and profane. Verse 16, by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Also as to his character, in verse 17, he was proud and corrupted. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground, I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. And you know this verse 18, as to his character, he was unrighteous. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, By the iniquity of thy merchandise, therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all of them that behold thee. Secondly, under his fallen state, as to his activity, as to his activity, he is involved in merchandising in rational creatures of God, verses 16 and 18. That is, he is using God's creatures for his own selfish advantage. Remember the criticism that Peter brings down on elders who do that in their place of leadership in the church, following the pattern of Satan. He is using God's rational creatures to his own advantage, the opposite of love. Thirdly, as to his judgment... You see it in verses 16, 17, and 19, and we'll look at it more fully in Isaiah. But as to his judgment, it was an immediate judgment as well as a future judgment and then a final stage. And if you'll compare verses 16, 17, and 19, including with 19, all they that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. So that as you look at it, Satan was judged at the cross, the triumph was one, he is in a state of judgment, and he will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire. After being bound in the millennium, he will then be loosed for a little season, will gather those who still have not submitted themselves to the righteous reign of Christ, and will be cast for eternity into the lake of fire. So as to his judgment, it was immediate, that is, he lost his position of rulership. It was future to be judged at the cross, and there is a the final stage of that judgment. Now, Roman numeral two, Satan's sin. For a broader elaboration of Satan's sin, turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, and you might like to note, along with Isaiah 14, 12 to 17, some parallel passages in John 8:44. And 1 Timothy 3.6. The first thing you see under Satan here in Isaiah 14, capital A, is the glory of his name. The glory of his name. He is designated before his fall as Lucifer. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground who didst weaken the nations? By the way, you'll notice once again that the preceding context speaks of the earthly Babylon. And then, as the actual ruler behind the earthly ruler, you come to verse 12, and here it addresses, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Remember that Satan in the scripture is addressed under many titles. Lucifer, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the Beelzebub, Belial, the dragon, the serpent, the god of this age, so on and so forth. And here is the most illustrious name that was given of the devil, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You have, first of all, the glory of his name. Before the fall was Daystar, son of the dawn, verse 12. Secondly, you have something of the greatness of his power, In verses 16 and 17, you have something of a commentary on the last part of verse 12. The last part of verse 12 said, Who did weaken the nations? who did shake kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities and opened not the house of his prisoners? You might compare Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 with the 16th and 17th verses. He made the earth tremble, he shook kingdoms, he made the world like a desert, overthrew its cities, and did not free his prisoners. These things are ascribed to the one who is the active agent behind the human agency. Thirdly, the gross nature of his sin. In verse 13 and 14, you have five I wills that Satan gives expressing the extent of his sin. And you notice that they're introduced with the statement, Thou hast said in thine heart. In other words, it was intended to be secret. He said in his heart, but it was openly known by God, indicating that there is no such thing as a secret sin with God. And although it was not at this point yet open rebellion, it was just as despicable in God's sight. He knows the thought while it is yet on the tongue. Five things, then, about this open sin, which was intended to be secret, which God condemns, and which was the basis for the condemnation of Satan. The first thing about it is he desired to share God's abode. He desired to share God's abode. Verse 13a, the first I will. I will ascend into heaven. Now, as far as we understand it, Satan's rightful place was the second heaven. If we put together a theology of heaven, and I'm sure that there is a great deal that we do not, well, that's an understatement of the year, a great deal we do not understand. There's hardly anything that we are told. That's the way to put it. But we do have, in 2 Corinthians 12, for example, that Paul said he passed through the heavens to the third heaven, which seemed to be the abode of God. And God never allowed him to speak of that experience. Talk about experiences. If somebody wanted to talk about an experience, that'd really be one to talk about, but God didn't let him do it. That's like the preacher that got a hole in one on Sunday morning and couldn't talk about it. His rightful place was in heaven, in the second heaven. His duty was in the third heaven, the place of the Mount of God, but his abode was apparently in the second heaven. You might want to compare Ephesians 1:20 20, and 21 with 2 Corinthians 12:2. So the first element of his sin was his desire to share God's abode. Now notice, in each step it progresses. The second thing, you see, he desired to control heaven's hosts. He desired to control heaven's hosts. Verse 13b, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And if you'll simply make a concordance study of the Word of God with regard to stars, I think you will note that this is a biblical reference to angels. You might compare Job 38, 7, and Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, and 7 through 9. So that it would seem that he wanted to control heaven's hosts. He wanted to have absolute control over them. And you might note that in his sin he does have a spiritual kingdom now. Ephesians 6.12 Thirdly, he desired to control God's chosen people. Verse 13c I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. We cannot take the time to go into an in-depth exegesis here, but to give you simply the result of it, he wanted to rule together with or instead of, Messiah. And the terms mountain and congregation and assembly and sides of the north probably refer to governmental aspects. And if you want to do a little side study on that, these verses would help you. Isaiah 2.2, Numbers 14.10, and Psalm 48.2 so that he wanted to rule together, or in place of, the Messiah over God's people Israel. Fourth, he desired the glory which belongs to God alone. Verse 14a, I will ascend unto the heights of the clouds. You'll notice that in the scripture the term clouds is often a reference to the abode of God, Back in Exodus 24, 15 through 18, you have reference to the Shekinah glory, the clouds. And the term heights here, or heavenlies, may well be a reference to the proper abode of angels, again referring to Ephesians 1:20 20 and 21. So that he is saying he desired the glory which belongs to God. He wanted to mount up above the place of God, above the clouds. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be, and now the last one is the fifth, he desired the power and authority of the Most High. I will be like the Most High. He desired the power and the authority of the Most High, 14b. I will be like the Most High. This title of God here, Most High, indicates that satan's desire was to be possessor of heaven and earth and you can compare with that genesis 14 verses 19 and 22. his sin then was in wanting to be like god and that's one of the major clues that you'll find to the working of the devil which we will look in the following hour that is he has been and now is a master counterfeiter. His basic work is counterfeit. His sin was not only then the rejection of God's will, but also the substituting of something else of his own design in its place. He wanted to ascend above the throne of God. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. And interestingly enough, when he came with his temptation to the first sinners, it was along the same line. You shall be like God. And the sin of pride, which is evidenced in the five I wills here, is the heart of the epitome of sin as far as God is concerned. And you remember that when Paul instructs Timothy as to the kind of people who ought to be leaders in the church, that is, deacons, Remember, he says he is not to be a novice, lest he be overcome by the condemnation of the devil, which was pride. And perhaps we ought to think about that today, when we think about those that we put in places of spiritual leadership. God says, not a novice. The devil looked at his wisdom, and he looked at his beauty, and it was his undoing. And the same thing is true with us. The novice tends to forget that all that he is is by the grace of God. He forgets that it is not really true that God is lucky to have him on his team, but that he is really fortunate to be on God's team. And as we mature in the Lord, we become more and more convinced of Paul's confession that I am the least of the least of all the saints in his own eyes. This is why when we come to an IBS like this and go through 20, 30, 40 sessions and perhaps pick up a lot of information that we need to beware when we go away that we do not think that we really now know and that we are God's agent now to straighten out all the errors of the world. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Your maturity will determine to a great extent how you can handle it. There is nothing that God condemns more than pride. That was the undoing of the devil and of the human race. Pride.